We're in Romans chapter 10, so you can go ahead and open your Bibles there. For those of you visiting this morning, sorry that we're kind of <laughs> right in the middle of the book of Romans almost here. So uh, this is our 91st message in the book of Romans. So we usually teach through books of the Bible, just verse after verse after verse after chapter after chapter. Um, that way nobody gets lost. Everybody knows where we're going to be next week for the most part. We take a couple breaks for Easter and Christmas and things like that. But for the most part, we're in the book of Romans right now. Uh, I would ask that you uh, um, join along as I, you read along as I read for you our text this morning. Um, as we begin this adventure into Romans chapter 10, we finally got through Romans chapter 9. And we'll be talking a little bit about that in our introduction. But in Romans chapter 10, verse 1 to 4, it says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved, speaking of Israel. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, as we begin this this passage, I've entitled this little kind of mini-series here in the 10th chapter, God's way of righteousness, God's way of righteousness. And for the next couple of weeks, we'll be looking at Christ, the law and Israel's inexcusable unbelief that they were given everything they had to believe and they spurned it. They set it aside. If you want a title for today's message, you might say religion does not equal righteousness. (laughs) Religion does not equal righteousness. As we come to this chapter 10 in Romans, there's a distinct part of uh, kind of division here, in a way. And um, in, in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, these three chapters, Paul is basically wanting to talk to us about justification, about salvation, about righteousness. And here in these three chapters, having completed his, pretty much his teaching of the Christian faith, he takes up the whole matter of the position of the Jews. Because that's whom mainly he was speaking to. There were Gentiles as well, but his heart was really for the Jews. Um, and there's, there's two reasons here for doing that. One, of course, if you think about it, in the New Testament, the church was brand new, and the 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 people who were included in the church um, were mostly Gentiles. There were some Jewish folks who came to Christ, but for the most part, they were Gentiles. And so the Jewish nation was literally outside the Christian church. A small number had come in, but most of them were outside. Whereas the Gentiles, most of all the other people, were just crowding into the church. They wanted to hear Christ. They wanted to hear all this other information about salvation. So that's the New Testament church. It's mainly filled with Gentiles, not Jews. The second reason was that the fact that the Jews being outside of the church, the way of salvation that was being proclaimed, seemed to raise question in people's minds. Well, wait a minute. God promised that he would be faithful to Israel. That what about all these promises of God to Israel? And he 
the Apostle Paul had been elaborating on these at the end of chapter 8. And uh, so the Apostle is taking up this matter and he deals with these three chapters with that in mind. And so in chapter 9, we saw Paul's main teaching is that salvation is something that is entirely dependent upon the purpose of God. We saw that in verse 11. It says, though they were not yet born, Esau, his brother, they had not done nothing wrong, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. So you have to remind yourself constantly, before the creation of the world, before the creation of man, humankind, God conceived the purpose of saving many of those who would fall. And he does this in accord with his election of them. In Ephesians, it tells us, before the foundation of the world, God elected us. And after chapter 9, there's nothing really more to be said about that. However, Paul does go on. And so salvation is entirely upon God. Men and women can never boast of the fact that they came to Christ or they're a Christian Because not even their own faith saves them. Faith is a gift of God. And so it's God who saves. And the Apostle Paul gives us the bulk of that information in chapter 9. And we've gone through that in detail. And he defends that doctrine of election and predestination there. But there's another side of the truth stated in that chapter. Toward the end of the chapter, Paul refers to the fact that the Jews, in contrast to all the Gentiles, they had not obtained the righteousness of God. They didn't have it. And this was because, he says, of their unbelief. So when you stop and you think about this, well, wait a minute. Um, You know, logically, our mind says, well, if God selects some for salvation, then doesn't he select some to go to hell? No, he doesn't do that. If a man is saved, it's because God has saved him. He intervened into his life. He transformed him. He gave him eyes to see and ears to hear the gospel of Christ. The Bible describes someone who is yet to come to Christ as being dead in their trespasses and sin. Last time I checked, dead people do not respond. But if a man is lost, that is attributed to his own rejection of the gospel and his rebellion against God's way of salvation. No one's going to be in hell going, well, God, I'm here because you didn't select me. No. Just like nobody's going to be in heaven proclaiming their own wisdom and and goodness, that's why they're there. So in chapter 10, Paul is taking up this, really this second point. He explains it fully and he also maintains the the balance here of scripture. And after Paul finishes chapter 10, at the end, he goes back at the beginning of chapter 11 to his main theme, which is God's purpose for the Jew and the Gentile. So it's almost, chapter 10 is almost a parenthesis in between chapter 9 and 11. You could look at chapters 9, 10, and 11 as a whole, but chapter 10 is kind of like a little inserted parenthesis there. 
And so we want to look today at chapter 10 with that in mind. Now, if I were to draw an illustration for you to open this message with, I'm thinking of one that I read in this, this uh, sermon last week on Romans 10. And he gave the illustration of a dear old church lady who, for most of her life, faithfully attended a mainline Protestant church. Hardly ever missed a Sunday. Small little town in the Bible Belt section of our country. And this dear old church lady helped with pretty much every ministry in the church. She had a history of helping with the nursery. She did her time in the children's ministry. She worked overtime in the kitchen during socials, helping prepare meals for people. After services, making coffee. She served in the Women's Missionary Society faithfully keeping in touch with all the missionaries. And everyone in the church who would know her would say, oh, she's the sweetest servant. She's the sweetest person that they know. It's too bad she married who she married. She was just married to an old cuss. He had no time for religion. He said that the church is full of hypocrites. Why do I want to go hang out with people like that? Hypocrites and do-gooders, that's all that's in the church. He prefers his buddies at the local tavern. They can tell some good off-color jokes. They can place a friendly bet on a football game, swap stories about their latest fishing or hunting adventure. That's who he he liked to hang out with. But you know what? He was rather glad that his wife went to church on Sunday. At first, he didn't like it, but then he realized, hey, this could work out for my benefit. It gave him the freedom to do whatever he wanted to on Sunday mornings, which was fishing. So he would joke that he was going to go baptize a few worms on Sunday morning while she gets her religious fix at the local church. If you were to walk up to that woman in church and say, you know what, on what basis do you hope to get to heaven? The question alone would most likely shock her. How dare you even ask me, might be her response. Who do you think you are? You don't know who I am? I've been in this church for years. I've served for years. But if you restated the question, on on what basis do you hope to get into heaven? She might reply this way. Well, all good people go to heaven. I've always tried my best to be nice to others. I've served at the church in various ways. And I've usually been able to ignore the the mean comments that my husband hurls at me week after week. God knows that I've done the best that I could. And I feel that I will go to heaven because I'm a good person. Well, back to the husband. Lately, he hasn't been feeling very well. But like most old geezers, he don't go to the hospital, won't go to the doctor. He avoids it like the plague. But finally, he gets worried enough to schedule an appointment with the local doctor. The doctor runs a few tests, comes back into the room, 
and gives him the bad news. You've got advanced cancer. If you had come in a few years ago, we might be able to do something with it, but there's not much we can do now. You have at most a few months to live. Well, he goes downhill real fast. So they arrange hospice care. And one day a hospice worker whom he likes is able to share the gospel with him. She tells him of God's forgiveness. That God offers forgiveness for all of his sins as a free gift. If he'll simply repent of his sins and trust in Christ. What he did on the cross for him. She's not pushy. But she shares the gospel. And she leaves him the gospel of John. And it sits on the side table near the bed for a couple days. And he realizes his time is short. And the news sinks in. He begins to read the gospel of John. And as he begins to read it, he devours it. He can't get enough. And God opens his eyes to see his sin and his need for a savior. And he sees that Jesus is God's son, the savior of all who trust in him for salvation. He puts his trust in Christ. And he dies a few weeks later. And goes to heaven. His wife really would never say it, but. She's secretly kind of relieved that he's gone. He was always difficult to live with anyway. So she continues with all her religious activities through the church. Well, lo and behold, a few days, a few years later, she dies. And because she was trusting in her own righteousness, this nice, dear, old church lady goes to hell. She had never trusted in Christ as a necessary, perfect righteousness that that God gives to all who believe. See, that story that I just depicted for you, obviously it's fictional, but it describes one of the most misconceptions about the most important subject imaginable. How does a person get eternal life and go to heaven? It's a topic where you don't want to be in error. (laughs) There's no fudge room here. There's no second chances. The Bible plainly says that we die once in Romans 9 verse 27. Then we face the judgment. There's no make-up exams. There's no second chance. God doesn't grade on a curve, as some say. It's simply pass or fail. And to pass, to pass the test, you must score 100% perfect righteousness. One sin in thought, one sin in word, one sin in deed, and you face God's eternal judgment. That's an offense to many people, that message of the gospel. You mean it's not up to me to try my best and do what I can and be a good person? No, it's not. 
As a matter of fact, Charles Simeon, I, I don't know if you saw this last week, but Charles Simeon said this, any plan of salvation which, which gives no offense to self-righteous men is certainly not of God. And so in our text, in Romans 10, Paul is explaining why some very religious people, the Jews, miss salvation. The Jews were about as religious as anybody could get. They were fixated on keeping the law of Moses perfectly. In fact, in order to interpret the law correctly, they came up with all these hundreds of extra laws just to make sure that they were doing it right. Silly things like keeping the Sabbath holy wasn't specific enough for them. So they had rules about the Sabbath. How far you could walk. What constituted work on the Sabbath day. If you picked up a stick on the Sabbath, well, how big was the stick? Literally down to the measurements and the weight. And how far did you walk with the stick? And you think I'm joking, all you have to do is look at John chapter 9, verse 6 and 16. And you see Jesus on the Sabbath, he made clay. He just simply bent down and he made some clay with some spit to anoint a blind eye of a, uh, the eyes of a blind man. And the Jewish religious leaders went berserk. They accused him of breaking the Sabbath. They had rules on, on washing. They had rules on cleanliness that they added to the law. Mark 7, 3 talks about that. They had all kinds of stuff to keep. All the the do's and the don'ts. But you know what? They missed salvation, beloved. And they even crucified the one who offered salvation to them. And so in the larger context here in Romans chapter 10, Paul is responding to this question. He's responding to the question, if God is faithful to his promises to his chosen people, then why are most Jews rejecting Christ? That's the question he's asking. If God has promised the nation of Israel that he was going to be faithful to them and they would see salvation, but they're not, well, wait a minute. That, that calls God's faithfulness into question. And as Christians, can we trust him that he'll be faithful to the promises to us? So in chapter 9, Paul emphasized God's sovereignty throughout the chapter. See, it was never his sovereign plan to save all individual Jews. Rather, he always accomplishes his purpose by saving a remnant, a number of them, which he's chosen according to his grace. The rest he passes over. He leaves in their sin. And he will be glorified when he judges them. So you have to remind yourself, if you're saved, it's totally due to God's gracious sovereign election of you and some may say in their hearts well that's not fair well chapter 10 addresses that and so paul shifts from god's sovereignty to man's responsibility he shows that the jews were who were lost had no basis to blame god they couldn't say well god made me do it no Their spiritual pride made them think that their religious practices and their good works would somehow qualify them for heaven. But people who think that they are good enough for God get offended 
if you tell them that they're sinners in need of a Savior. If you don't believe me, just try it. And so they took offense at Christ. And last week we looked at how they stumbled over him. Last week we talked about Christ being a stumbling stone or the cornerstone. See, they were lost because of their spiritual blindness. They were lost because of their sin. They were lost because of their unbelief. So now Paul, in chapter 10, is showing us why religious people often miss salvation. And it's simply this. Religious people miss salvation because they think that their good works will satisfy God's demand for righteousness. So they don't trust in Christ for righteousness. So they miss it. Well, the first point here is religious people often miss salvation in spite of the prayers and deep concern of godly people. But we should pray anyway. Look at verse 1. Verse 1 says, Paul says, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation, for his countrymen, for his fellow Jews. He didn't start off chapter 10 and say, well, you know, since I taught you all about God's election and God's sovereignty, you know, uh, don't worry about it. God's got it all taken care of. No, he said, you know what? I pray for them. My heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. The doctrine of election, beloved, does not negate our need to pray for the salvation of the lost. Don't ever believe that. Sometimes those who argue against the doctrine of election will say, if God sovereignly chooses who will be saved, then what's the point of praying for anybody's salvation? If God has chosen them, they will be saved whether you pray or not. And if he hasn't chosen them, your prayers won't be any good. So they contend that belief in the doctrine of election kills prayer for the lost. But you know what? That clearly wasn't clear clear for the Apostle Paul. It didn't kill his desire to pray. In Romans chapter 9, verse 11, he could not have made a clearer statement that God chose Jacob and rejected Esau apart from any good works that they did. Why did he say that? So that God's purpose, it says right there in verse 11, according to his choice would stand. And while they're still sitting there kind of sputtering, saying that's not fair, he adds chapter 9, verse 16. So then salvation does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who what? Has mercy. And he says it even more strongly in verse 18 of chapter 9. He says, so then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. And then in verse 23 of the same chapter 9, he says, he calls Uh, God calls those who are chosen to salvation vessels of mercy and those that they were prepared beforehand for glory. God prepared them. God chose them. I mean, he couldn't have given a much stronger teaching on the doctrine of God's sovereign election. But here he is a few verses later saying that his heart's desire and his prayer to God was for the salvation of the Jews. There is no contradiction between God's sovereign election and our heartfelt prayers. You need to understand that. The question is, how do they fit together? God's sovereign plan includes our prayers. God's sovereign plan includes our preaching of the gospel to the lost. 
He says that in chapter 10, verses 14 and 15. He says, how will they call on him whom they had not believed? And how are they to believe in whom they had not heard? And how will they hear, what? Without someone preaching. And how will they preach unless they are sent, as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So God's sovereignty, God's sovereign election and salvation does not negate our responsibility. God saves his elect through our prayers and our preaching. Don't ever give up praying for maybe your relative or your friend who's not a Christian yet. If God has done all that he can do to save lost people, and now it's just up to their free will, as some say, that's a waste of time praying for their salvation, (laughs) in my mind. I mean, God's not up in heaven, beloved, you know, wringing his hands saying, man, I I sure would like them to get saved too. But you know what? My hands are tied. It's up to them now. I mean, there's a parallel to the balance between God's sovereignty and our responsibility to pray. You can find that in Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 to 3. And we don't really have time to go into all that now, but just to give you a little background on that. Daniel was reading the prophet Jeremiah and he observed that Jeremiah had prophesied that Israel would be in captivity for 70 years. And Daniel did the math and he realized that the time for them to be restored was rapidly approaching. So he just sat back and waited for God to act, right? Is that what it says? He didn't do anything. God's got under control. I'm not going to do it. No. Daniel sought the Lord, it says in verse 3, by prayer and supplication, with fasting, with sackcloth and ashes. See, God sovereignly prophesied that he, what he would do, but Daniel earnestly prayed that he would do it. And so we should pray for the salvation of lost people. We don't know who the elect are. Last time I checked, they don't have a uh, you know, big yellow E or red E on their forehead or whatever that says, oh, I'm elect, witness to me. You know, I'm going to get saved. I think it was Spurgeon that said, the elect don't have a yellow stripe down their back. So we want to pray for the lost. Secondly, unanswered prayers for the salvation of the lost should not discourage us from praying. Paul's prayer for the salvation of the Jews was unanswered in his lifetime, if you think about it. It's like praying the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6.10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, I haven't seen that. Christians have been praying that request for almost 2,000 years, but it's not fully answered yet. You see partial answers here and there as people are saved. Learn to obey him. But we should keep praying for his kingdom to come and his will to be done. Even though we know that eventually it will happen. And even though that we may not see those answers in our lifetime. Trust me, if you're praying for the salvation of somebody in your family or a lost loved one or whatever, keep praying as long as that person is alive. Because you never know. You never know 
how God will work. I think when we get to heaven, we'll be surprised who's there, frankly. But we'll also be surprised who's not there. We can't understand how our prayers interface with God's sovereign will, but we should keep praying because that's what God commands us to do. Thirdly, don't assume that religious friends and relatives are saved but rather pray all the more for their salvation. Sometimes we get so hung up on someone's religion because somebody goes to church or somebody has a Bible or maybe they go to a devotion or BSF or whatever, well, they must be a Christian. Don't make that assumption. There's a, there's a great vast of people on the face of this earth who are professing Christ, but they do not possess Christ. They're saying all the right things, but they have not been converted by the glorious grace of Christ. They seem good, nice, religious people. We need to pray for them. I mean, sometimes we see somebody who's just really whacked out, very ungodly. Maybe they're an atheist or whatever in in a really bad lifestyle. And we're looking at them and they'll never come to Christ. (laughs) I mean, that's kind of our attitude. We need to pray for them even more. We look at religious people and say, well, they don't need Christ. They're already Christians. And that's what we assume. And our assumption may be wrong. Both counts are wrong. Jesus was a friend to a a corrupt tax collector. He was a friend to immoral prostitutes because he knew that they were sick. He knew that they needed him as a spiritual physician. But you know what? When the religious Pharisees were not good enough to get into heaven by their own religiosity, Jesus told them they needed the new birth if they wanted to see the kingdom of God. So if you have religious family or friends, don't assume that they're saved just because they're religious. You shouldn't assume you're saved because you're religious. Pray for God convict them of their pride, their self-righteousness so that they'll see their need of a savior and the last thing here on the first verse is pray especially for the salvation of those who have been mean or unkind to you Paul suffered terribly at the hands of the Jews and yet here we see him praying for their salvation They saw Paul as kind of a turncoat. They saw Paul as somebody who associated with the dogs, the the despised Gentiles of their day and age. And so they dodged his steps and they tried to even to assassinate him at times. I mean, it would be understandable for Paul to say, you know what? Let them go to hell. (laughs) I mean, I'm tired of them trying to kill me, beating me up and doing all this stuff. They deserve it. But it says here, instead, his heart's desire and constant prayer was that God would save them. Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, to what? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So if you have that family member who ridicules your faith and every Thanksgiving or Christmas dinner, you're just, oh, I'm not looking forward to this. Begin to pray for them. Pray for their salvation. I challenge you to make a list of maybe six or ten lost people that you know. Maybe in your family, maybe just friends, maybe work. And begin to pray for those people. 
Pray every day that God would somehow open up a door, open their mind to the gospel. Somehow they would be confronted with the truth of the gospel. But why are religious people often lost? Well, Paul explains the second point here. Religious people often miss salvation in spite of their zeal for God because their zeal is not in accordance with knowledge, it says in verse 2. Paul says, therefore, I testify about them that they have a zeal for God. But it's not in accordance with knowledge. I mean, when you stop and think about this, Paul himself had been more zealous for his Jewish religion than most of his contemporary Jews. And it resulted in him persecuting the church. Paul wasn't just mean. He really thought he was doing a religious duty by cleansing this Christian pariah from the face of the earth because it was infringing on Judaism. I mean, a modern-day example, you think about the Muslim faith. They're very zealous for God, clearly, as they understand him. But what does their zeal lead to? It causes them to kill Christians and even family members who profess faith in Christ. Jehovah Witnesses are very zealous for God. They put us to shame in a lot of ways. But they promote the fatal view that Jesus is not fully God. And so their their zeal only increases their condemnation. We live in a day, the the age of the church, that really looks down on absolute truth. Looks down on doctrinal precision. Talk to a lot of pastors about this, and a lot of times they're intrigued about because they always, well, what are you preaching on now? I said, well, we're still in the book of Romans. You know, I said, whoa, you're still in the book of Romans? You know, we went through the, the book of Romans in 16 weeks or whatever. It's like, wow. And it's, 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 it's sad because uh, so many times they, they, they look down on teaching doctrine or standing up for, for absolute truth. Or it's easier for them to say, well, you know, I don't think we have the only answer. We don't, we don't have the only way to God. I mean, I'm sure other, other faiths, if, if they practice their faith in, in good conscience and are, are committed to that, I'm sure God takes that into consideration. I mean, if you've ever seen those little bumper sticky, stickers around, you know, as far as... Uh, Coexist. You ever seen those? It has all the different emblems of faith. It's like, I don't think so. You know, it doesn't matter whether you're Buddhist or Hindu or Christian or atheist, whatever. You know, it's as long as you're, as you're sincere. Um, I mean, when you, you carry that kind of mentality over to the idea of going to a doctor... You know, when you go to the doctor and you get a prescription and, you know, you, sometimes you go to the pharmacy and at Kaiser, they say, okay, we well, have to be, you have to have a consultation over here and they'll tell you how to take this stuff because this is serious medicine. And so you go to the window and, okay, here's what you do. You know, you got to take it this time of day without any food, whatever. They're very precise and take this amount. The pills are a certain size. 
Why? Because they understand the importance of taking the exact drug that the doctor has prescribed in the exact amounts at the proper times. You don't just take a handful and say, I'll just down these and hopefully to take care of this thing. You'll be in a world of hurt. It's the same thing when we come to a relationship with God or religion when we talk about these things. It matters eternally, eternally, whether you believe in Jesus Christ as the eternal Son of God who took on human flesh and died for your sins and was raised from the dead. And I'll just let you know, if if you are zealous for a different Jesus or a different way of salvation other than faith alone in Christ alone, Paul says that you will be damned, that you will end up in hell one day. In, in Galatians chapter 1, Paul says this, verses 6 to 9. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. But there are some who trouble you and want you to distort the gospel of Christ. Look at what he says. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be what? Accursed. That means you're going to a bad place. It's not good. See, all roads do not lead to the top. Being sincere or zealous is not enough. Good intentions are not good enough. That's not what Paul is saying. You can be all those things, but if you are mistaken about the truth of the gospel, one day you will be rejected at the gates of heaven. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, religious zeal must always be tested against the core truth of the unchanging gospel. What are the characteristics of false zeal? Martin Lloyd-Jones lists 11 of them here. I'll just go over them real quick with you because I think it's important that we, we examine the zeal that we do have because zeal itself is morally neutral. There's a false zeal as well as a true zeal. How can you tell the difference? He says this, first of all, there should always be a query in our minds if our zeal has been imposed upon us by someone else or we are just conforming to a pattern. Who does that? The cults do that. They impose a zeal on the people. If you were persuaded to become a Christian by someone else, that's a problem. That zeal was imposed upon you. Secondly, he says, if the zeal that has to be whipped up or organized up, kept up, that is, that, that is good presumptive evidence that it may be a false zeal. In other words, if you're just kind of creating this whole hubbub about being a Christian and it's coming from your flesh, then it's probably a false deal. Thirdly, he says, if you find that you put greater emphasis upon doing than upon being, it's always an indication that you should be careful. In other words, if you're so focused on 
doing the right thing rather than being the right thing before God, we might have a problem. If you are more anxious to do things than to be a saint, you better examine your zeal. Because false zeal always puts an emphasis upon doing. Fourthly, he says, the test of false zeal is the activity rather than the truth. Which is always very prominent and at the center of life. The thing you are struck by all along, all along, all along is the energy that is displayed rather than the truth which the people claim to be representing. So false zeal, there's always a tendency to overdo things. An element of excess. Activity is more evidence in evidence than the teaching. Fifthly, he says, when methods, organization, or machinery are very prominent, it's very good to presume that the evidence that that's a false zeal when you're more concerned about, you know, certain things or organizational things. Sixthly, he says, uh, basically, if it has anything to do with the flesh, it's false. (laughs) And he gives a whole bunch of reasons why, which we're not going to go into. Seventh, he says, false zeal dislikes being questioned. It resents inquiry. It says, can you not see that I'm zealous? I'm enthusiastic. I'm sincere. I want to do it. Oh, yeah, I can see that. But let's make sure because of the teaching of Scripture. See... It's the impatience of all that. It just wants to get things done. They don't want to be examined or questioned, their motive. Seventhly, false zeal shows an impatience with teaching itself. It says there in our scriptures, they have a zeal of God, but without or not according to knowledge. See, they don't want the knowledge, they've rejected the knowledge. They're not interested in the knowledge. They just want to do things. They just want to keep the law. They just want to make sure that everybody else is keeping the law. That's what's important. They don't want to be taught. They're religious people. They don't need to be taught anything. That's basically the spirit of false zeal. Um, Ninth, he basically says, false zeal is concerned primarily with success rather than the truth of what is being propagated. So if you're all concerned about you know, the success of something, your Christian life, and rather than really how deep it is, we've got a problem. Tenth test, he said there's a lack of balance. He says you'll generally find that people who are animated by a false zeal see one thing only, one aspect of truth only, and they're not interested in anything else. It may be evangelism only, or it may be Calvinism only, or it may be Arminianism only. Or it may just be prophecy. But it's a very shallow doctrinal background. And then the last one. He says, men and women who have false zeal are always restless people. They're restless because they are living on their own activity, their own energy, their own enthusiasm, and their own sincerity. They will never have peace. And these people show it. 
if they are taken ill and cannot do things, they become depressed, they are unhappy, then they realize that they have been living on their own activity. It would be, if a, I mean, sometimes I think, well, what would happen one day if, you know, I couldn't preach anymore? I mean, would that happen to me? Is, is this such an important thing in my life that, boy, if I'm not doing this one thing, does the rest of life just fall apart? So you have to have a balance. There's been a lot of men who have worked very hard in their careers to get to the top and, you know, did everything right. And then the final time and they got all the money to retire, they retire. And you know what? They don't know what to do with themselves. Why? Because their life was so caught up in their career. Without their career, they can't have fun. And they get depressed and they start to drink and their life just goes downhill. And eventually they die a miserable, lonely person with a bunch of money. (laughs) Sad. It's really sad. Well, so you can take those tests and kind of apply them to yourself. And the, the true zeal is the opposite of each one of those. Well, thirdly, religious people often miss salvation because they do not know about God's perfect righteousness. And so they seek to establish their own righteousness. They don't know about God's perfect righteousness. Romans 10.3 says, For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Now, he didn't say here that the Jews did not know that God is righteous. That's not what he's saying. I mean, anybody that knows anything about the Old Testament, especially a Jew, would declare that God is righteous. He means basically that the Jews did not understand God's saving righteousness. And, and that's important because it's God who imputes righteousness to, to us who believe. We don't bring any righteousness of our own to the table. And you can see that really in the original language. Rather than being possessive, it's in the the genitive of source, being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God, the the ESV says. And so Paul explains this with regard to his own conversion. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 9, he says, Not having a righteousness of my own, remember this verse, derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. See, this, this perfect imputed righteousness was revealed to the Jews all the way back in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. It says, Then he, Abraham, Abram, believed in the Lord, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Paul cited that text in Romans chapter 4, verse 3. And he expounded on that chapter. We went through all that. So the ignorance of the Jews was not due to lacking the information. It was the willful ignorance stemming from their pride in keeping the law. The Pharisees proudly thought that they were keeping the law because they didn't murder. Look at me, I didn't murder anybody. Jesus comes along and says, well, if you hate somebody, that's murder. <laughs> well, wait a minute. Look at me, you know, I'm faithful in my life. Well, wife, if you, if you, if you, lust, in your, if you in your, lust in your heart, then you've committed adultery. Well, wait a minute. <laughs> See, Jesus convicted them by showing that God looks at the heart. God looks at the heart. To be sinfully 
angry with your brother is to murder him. To lust after a woman in your heart is to commit adultery. And so the problem with the religiously proud people or here it is the Jews was that they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God because they thought that they had that covered. They had their own righteousness. To subject yourself to the righteousness of God basically says, you know what? You have to admit that you're a sinner. You have to come clean. You have to say, you know what? My works are not going to justify me one day. One day I'm going to be in a world of hurt unless I, 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 I turn to Christ for salvation. Because I know myself. They would have to admit that all of their good deeds were like filthy rags, like Isaiah chapter 64, 6 says. James Montgomery Boyce, in his commentary, uses this analogy of a woman who is dying of a disease. And she refuses to go to the doctor because she insists that she looks fine whenever she puts her makeup on. Yeah, her face may look fine when she puts her makeup on. But she needs to deal with the internal disease that's killing her. See, religious people may look good with all their good deeds. But if you do not submit to the need for God's perfect righteousness credited to your account, your good deeds are just like that makeup. And so religious people often miss salvation in spite of the prayers and concern of godly people for their salvation. They miss salvation because of their zeal for God and because it's not in line with his knowledge. And they miss salvation because they do not know about God's righteousness And so they seek to establish their own. The last thing here this morning, quickly, religious people miss salvation when they do not trust in Christ as their righteousness. Look at what he says in verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. I mean, this is a wonderful verse, but a lot of people get mixed up with this. The problem is that the word end has different nuances in its meaning. It can mean termination, it can mean goal, it can mean fulfillment, it can mean culmination. All those nuances are true with regard to Christ. But the difficult question is this, which does Paul mean? (laughs) To intend in Romans 10.4. Douglas Moon, his commentary, argues that two, two nuances are intended. Namely, that Christ is the termination of the law of Moses and that he is the culmination of that law anticipated. Thomas Schneider says this. He's probably correct when he argues that the basis that based on the relationship between verses three and four, it means termination in an experiential sense. In other words, Paul is responding to the specific Jewish error mentioned in verse three, that they use the law to try to establish their own righteousness. John MacArthur agrees. He says, Paul means that belief in Christ as Lord and Savior ends the sinner's futile quest for righteousness through his imperfect attempts to save himself by efforts to obey the law. 
I mean, aren't you blessed today that God has granted you salvation? That he said, this is something that's, that's free. It's a free gift. You just acknowledge your sinfulness before me, and you claim and you hold on to Christ and his work on Calvary. And you know what? Christ's righteousness will be imputed. It will be given to you, and it's by grace. You don't earn it. I mean, God could have come up with a, you know, hey, basically, you've got to keep at least six of the Ten Commandments, and then you'll go to I mean, he could have come up with a meandering of ways to get to heaven, but he didn't. He came up with one. It's through the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and his resurrection from the dead. All other attempts will fall short. So either you're seeking to be right with God by establishing your own righteousness through good deeds and morality in case you will miss in that case you'll miss God's salvation or you will recognize that you need a perfect righteousness that can only come from God and so you will abandon your own attempts and establish your righteousness and trust in Christ in Christ alone to be your righteousness then you will be saved See, God's way of salvation is not the way of the sweet little old church lady. The way of being good and religious. Because you know what, beloved? You can never be good enough. One sin disqualifies you from getting into heaven. No matter how much you try to counterbalance it with good works. We're all born with a terminal disease. The disease is called sin. And it grows progressively worse as we age. Don't be deceived with the thinking that somehow just putting makeup on will change that. Because God knows the thoughts and the intents of our hearts. God's way of salvation is to trust in Jesus Christ so that the righteousness of God can be given to you, can be credited to your account. That's what he says in Romans 3.24, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus I ask you this morning, have you received this gift? Are you willing to trust in Christ? Father, we pray this morning that you will use these words to draw our hearts closer to Christ, closer to God. Father, we know that the only way that we can have that canyon of of sin that disconnects us from our creator, reconciled us through the sacrifice of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we pray even now, Lord, that you would do that mighty work in our hearts. If there's any here this morning who's yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, Lord, I pray that they would recognize their need for forgiveness of sin, their need of, of peace in their life, their need of a righteousness that only you can give. And Father, that they would resign themselves to trusting in Christ and Christ alone. And they would cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me from my sin. This isn't something that's just going to save you for a couple days. We're talking about all eternity. You live this life, you die, then you enter eternity. And whether you Spend that eternity in in heaven with your creator or in hell, a place of utter darkness and torment. Really, is dependent on what you do with the information that was shared. 
trust in Christ. Implore you. Father, we thank you. We pray that you just bless us as we depart from here with a song. And also, Lord, I pray for the food over in the fellowship hall that you bless our fellowship over there as well. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.